This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of August 29th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I've mentioned before that my wife and I have a six-year-old son, and we, of course, want him to learn how money and personal finances work at a fairly early age so he can learn how to make smart decisions. We've been talking about giving him some kind of allowance for the last year. (laughs) That kind of delay usually means we don't have a very solid plan, and we're passing the bucks, if you will, to our future selves. And of course, we have a great resource for this kind of thing at the IBJ, personal finance columnist Pete Dunn, aka Pete the Planner. He has two kids, ages 10 and 13, and has spent several years trying to imprint them with economic wisdom. So I rang him up for his advice, and that's our podcast for this week. In retrospect, there are two kinds of advice here. There is the practical, mechanical side of money teaching your kids how to make money, how to save it, how to spend it, how to invest it, and how to earn interest. Pete has been guiding his daughter through hands-on experiences with money since at least the age of seven as she buys shares of stock, starts internet businesses, and even helps pay the family's mortgage every month. The other kind of advice is more about values. How should you handle debt? How much should you rely on your family for financial help? Is becoming rich by itself a worthwhile goal? Is the experience of a teen working a regular job more or less valuable than trying to burnish a college resume with sports and academics? I have strong feelings about a lot of these questions. In the end, a lot of this advice is just as appropriate for adults. So let's get to the conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Peter Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner. How are you? I'm good. It is so good to be with you. I know I say that every time, so it feels like, is that part of the script? Did you tell me to say that? But the reality is, Mason, I'm currently thrilled to be with you. People who listen to this podcast know there's never any script. <laughs> this is, <laughs> that, that's fair. That's this fair. is strictly stream of consciousness for me. How has the end of your summer been? Good. Kids are back in school. Uh, youth soccer season has began. Oh, begun. I feel that. Yeah. No one knows. And uh, so, yeah, I'm good. Well, uh, youth soccer season has started for us as well. This is I'm the six-year-old. This is his second season now. He is now in first grade. And through absolutely no genetic help from me or my wife, he seems to be good at math. Mm. And he told me the other day that he is bored with kindergarten review. And so I I need to figure out some other stuff to talk about. I figured I'd I'd start uh, talking to him about money and in particular about finances. He already knows about currency. He can, you know, he knows quarters and half dollars are and all that stuff. He's good at adding money, but I want him to be money smart And I know that this is something you think a lot about because you have two kids. Remind us who they are and how old they are. Yeah, 13-year-old daughter uh, and a 10-year-old son. And Mason, you're right. I I have been rather intentional about trying to teach them financial skills 
and I first started writing about this when they were probably younger than your son, right? And so there, it was a hypothesis at some point of what I, how I thought you should teach kids about money. Some of those theories have fallen apart over the last few years, and and I've learned some additional things. So now you got Olivia, your your oldest, involved in investing uh, in shares of stock, investing in the stock market by when? At least the age of seven. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, probably six or seven. I mean. It was really, there's a few elements that I like to teach to, to kids or that I've certainly taught to my kids. There's the idea of earning income, I think is is a number one by far. And I think it's 80% of the journey of earning your own money. Um, and I think, so, so I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. Another is what do you do with that money once you get it? What it always addicted to me, uh, addicted me to, to, to money is, is how it can grow. And I've always thought that that investing is an interesting way to do that. So consumer stocks, like I think she bought um, a share of Blue Buffalo stock, which was, this is not a stock recommendation, everybody. Uh, it was a dog food company, right? A pet food company. And she loved animals. And she thought it was neat that she owned a dog food company. And she used to go around in a precocious way when she was six or seven, telling people that she owned a dog food company, which was sort of fun at parties. Um, but ultimately, it showed that there's there's more than lemonade stands and piggy banks. Did you uh, encourage her and, uh, and also Teddy to uh, start businesses or to uh, figure out how to make an income? Absolutely. Absolutely. So th this is why I love lemonade stands. I, I feel like, you know, lemonade stands are like the ultimate nostalgia, but I think they take all the elements of a business and 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 put it right there for kids to problem solve around. Like there's this idea of, you need a product, you need marketing, you need customers. And I love that, right? And so my, my kids for, for many years when they were your son's age would do lemonade stands out in front of our house. And yes, occasionally the deck was stacked with grandparents and friends and those sorts of things of people who'd come by. Now, does my mom like an eight ounce glass of bad lemonade that she pays $20 for because she thinks that's a good idea? I don't know. I think she's just being a Mimi. But I will say, I find that to be great. In fact, when I drive to work sometimes early in the morning, there's this there's this lemonade stand. I'm not kidding. Uh, on my way to work, these two kids up at like seven in the morning, and I will do my best to pull over and, and, and to stop at it. Because I think lemonade stands teach you that you can earn your own money and then you get to decide what to do with it. And I think early on, you know, I don't get too caught up. We'll save this percent and give this percent. And I just think the mechanism of earning and spending is so important, Mason. Now, um, what, what if, like us, you live on a, a street that probably isn't safe uh, for your typical lemonade stand. Uh, what was your feeling on allowances? Is that, does that do the same thing or no? You know, uh, there's two schools of thought here. I happen to be in one of those schools. Uh, I'm not an allowance guy at, at this point in my life. I'm just not. I I, I didn't really get one. Uh, and I think that's a part of this too. I know some people will say, well, there's chores. And if you do chores, you get allowances. And if that works for you, awesome. Um, now that my daughter's 13 and she does want to spend money, all of the money that she spends is because she referees soccer games. And I mean, she can make 60 to $100 a day on a weekend day, uh, enough to buy whatever it is she wants to buy. And, and so at that point in time, it's fine. And prior to that, it's like, well, what does a, what does a nine-year-old need $5 a week for? Because uh, then, then you're getting into the say of you're giving someone money 
They're not earning the money and then they get to spend money they're given. And this is, I'm making a huge stretch here. Like at some point in time, people are just going to turn this off. But then it starts to feel like student loans where you're like, you're just giving someone money to spend that isn't theirs. And there's just no repercussions to that. And to me, that feels like why people are just so willing to take on more student loan debt. I'm glad you brought up the, the soccer refereeing because uh, I was kind of uh, beating my head and trying to think of, of things that a 12 or 13 year old could do besides babysitting. Yeah. So um, soccer referee in the state, it's actually a thing. Like in the state of Indiana, you can be a youth sports ref at a certain age. Uh, I think the age is 13. So that's a big part of it. I mean, there's the classic, you know, like I did mow lawns and all, all those sorts of things. They're fine. You know, both my kids have tried to start various internet businesses because it was sort of fun. My, my daughter would make bracelets and, and try to, we created a website together and she would put it out there. I'd put it on social media. So she got a little help there, but, uh, but just the, just the mechanism of business. My son and his friends created a, oddly enough, a knitting business in a West Carmel elementary school. <laughs> And they would sell it for candy. I'm sure we were very close to getting called to the principal's office for that one. Uh, but I just, again, to me, this is about showing kids how to earn their own money. And I think that is the heart of this entire thing. Because you, you hear about um, you know youth sports being so dominant in our lives that kids don't work during the summer. Teens don't work during the summer because my job is athletics or my job is, is school. Those missing summer work experiences are a problem in my eyes because that's when a kid can really learn the value of money because they're putting in the hours and then they're getting the rewards for that. Oh, man, you stole my closer. That was my closer. Uh, this, <laughs> this idea that the kid's job now is exclusively to go to school and, and have, you know, things to put on their, you know, college applications. And, and the one thing that they miss for sure is jobs and whatever practical information they glean from from working, like being able to show up on time regularly. I, I have to say, I find value of teaching money of, of a student working with other people who come from other backgrounds and financial experiences, whether it be, you know, a 16 year old working in a place where other adults are working, maybe it's their full time job or their 16 year old working with other 16 year olds where they have a different view on money. I think economic diversity is a great way to teach economics. Um, and, and by the way, this isn't the, you don't want to grow up and work full time at a place like this person does, do you? Like, that's not the lesson. That's gross. It's more of their own conclusions they draw from this. Oh, I'm making the same amount of money as this person and I'm 16 years old. You don't have to hammer that point home. Someone can do that themselves. Yeah, when I was when I was growing up, my mom was very much about, you know, make sure you have a job. Um, you know, there were no allowances. So I did a lot of dishwashing when I was a teenager, pursuant to this idea that you, you know, need to be able, you need to take classes and stuff during your, your summers to get into college. My college essay was about washing dishes at Renee's Delicatessen. And I am metaphysically certain because my grades were not that good. That is why I got into colleges. Uh, you know what? I buy that. I, I think, again, there's so much resume stacking. There, <laughs> there's so much resume stacking that when someone actually says, here's the real life experience that I've had, also not a college admissions expert here, <laughs> but I, I think it probably, I, I probably go somewhere. I'll, I'll tell you the challenge we're up against right now with a 13-year-old who earns her own money, 
that we've let her go six months of just doing whatever she wants. And it started to cross over into this point of, okay, yes, you're buying things that we wouldn't buy, but it is, it is getting a little bit ridiculous. She, she likes to buy makeup and hair stuff and nail stuff. We're fine. Great. Uh, as a hairless man, uh, I can tell you that it doesn't appeal to me. I'm a bald man. But at some point we're like, okay, we need you to start sending money aside for a car or you need to start sending money aside for your college books. And, and we actually had that conversation in the last couple of weeks. And here's why. We were sitting around the house the other day and she her account's getting low because soccer season just started. So she has not replenished it from her summer of fun. And she said, Dad, can you approve this app? And she sent me an app she wanted to approve on her phone. And it was Klarna. Now, Klarna is a buy now, pay later app. It's it's essentially credit. It, it's a form of credit. Dad, I want to buy this makeup. This makeup costs $35, but I only have to pay $5 this month and I can just pay $5 next month. And so it's a new form of credit, these buy now, pay later services that teens and tweens are finding practical because they only have to pay $5 and she will get the makeup shipped to her and then she can deal with the ramifications for the next six months. And she was like, can I get this? And I almost had a heart attack, Mason. And, and my wife just started laughing. She's like, oh, you have no idea. Our daughter, Ollie. She's like, Ollie, you have no idea what can of worms you just opened for yourself here. I was like, it's going to be the topic of my radio show this week. And these buy now, pay later services are the absolute worst way to teach your, your kid about money. Absolutely the worst. Well, I know one of the uh, tenants that you taught Olivia uh, when she was eight-ish or nine-ish uh, certainly was, was about debt and avoiding debt uh, at all costs. It is. Uh, again, uh, my hardline stances have sort of softened over the years because just context matters. But I think it's about setting these guideposts, right? It's to say you can make decisions without debt. And as a 12-year-old or as a nine-year-old, if if you can reinforce that message, Mason, what it ultimately leads to is the path of having the child move out of the house when they finish school. Like it's all on that path. It's not debt is evil. Like I don't believe that. I don't care about that. That's not my jam. I think it's about creating independent people that can go out and not be a drain. And, and again, that's not like that's not like a big tough guy statement. That's just to say you're making decisions that allow you to support yourself. That's it. And 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 here's what's tough. And again, I will I'll be the first to admit this. I grew up in an upper middle class family. My kids are growing up upper middle class family. And so it's when they hit the teen years and they really get to understand and appreciate the fruits of my wife and I's labor. It's that's when their money habits are formed because when they're young adults, what they want to do is to quip, quickly replicate the lifestyle they so enjoyed when they were teens. And that's why all of these decisions we've been making over the last 13 years start to matter because we've got to get to a point of saying, okay, you've got to wean yourself off of us because you've got to build your own lifestyle that is going to be nowhere near where it was in your teen years. And that's why work is so, so important to me for a kid because they can, they can start to create that own lifestyle. While I'm thinking about it, what are some good ways for six, seven, eight-year-olds to make money besides uh, lemonade sales? I don't, I don't, I'm going to answer your question, but I also, I don't want the point to be your six-year-old needs a job. Like, I don't want that to be the thing. Yeah. I, I want, I want it to be lemonade stands. I want it to be mowing grass, walking dog. I don't, and it, it also doesn't need to be constant. 
once or twice a year is fine. Two lemonade stands a year would get the job done. One a year would get the job done. It's more about getting your kid to the time they're a tween to to want to earn an income. I think that that that's what it's about. And, and that can't happen unless you set up an experience once a year or so during that mid to late elementary school where that commerce is happening. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with the IBJ podcast and my conversation with Pete the Planner about money lessons for our kids and probably adults too. What uh, What's your take on uh, kids' savings accounts? Yeah, I think they're great. They're a little tricky uh, because you either have to constantly make a deposit or they, they can shut down and they, they get kind of weird that way. I would also note that I used to love as a kid going, I still do, going to the bank and physically making a deposit. To teach your kid that now seems completely pointless because everything's digital in nature. My daughter does have a teen checking account that she has an app on her phone and she checks it. But Mason, what what worries me about this? It's the old toilet paper thing. You know, when you're in the toilet paper and, or when you're in the restroom and you see a roll of toilet paper and you need it and it's a full roll of TP, you're going to use a lot of TP because there's a lot there. You're not worried about running out of TP. But when you look over and it's too late and you're starting to see cardboard and there's less TP there, you're going to use less TP. And so the only thing happens in those situations is that your behavior shifts based on the resources in front of you, which doesn't sound like a bad thing, but it is when it comes to your checking account because it's, it's this phenomenon called balance spending where you look at your balance and that influences in a negative way how you spend. And, and, and as a 13 year old, I think she's looking at her phone going, oh, 60 bucks, that's not too bad. I can, I can do this. Whereas because we've not set financial goals with her yet, there's nothing she's trying to achieve. It is all a fresh roll of two-ply Charmin. I just realized with some horror that I, for a good amount of my adult life, have been a balance spender. Most people have, you know, the funny thing is, Mason, and, and I'm not aging you here, but balance spending did not happen in the 80s. You know, people knew their checking account balances all the time. They didn't have to look. They knew them because of check registers. And then in the 90s, when debit cards became the most you know popular means of spending, I believe it was 1996 or 98, uh, when it crossed over from checks, debit cards became the, the primary thing. That's the advent of balance spending, especially with online banking. And so... It's not unusual for a person to check their bank balance once a day on their phone or get an email alert or a text alert. And what that leads to is that because we spend money so frequently, you know, that that we don't know what has cleared and what hasn't cleared. And so we start to make assertions about how much money's in there. And I don't know if you've ever done the thing where you get your balance and it's more than you thought would be in there. And so you you're like, yes, but you didn't know. I mean, the, you, the, the problem is you literally didn't know, and that is a bad thing. And so then you will 
negatively react, negatively act and spend more money. And you just simply just didn't know what was in there. And so what I'm a little worried about with the tween teen situation is how do people who didn't grow up digitally with money teach people who only have digital financial lives about money? That, that is a challenge that I find myself faced with. Let me tell you the biggest takeaway I had from having a savings account when I was a kid. I was nine and my mom took me to Union Federal and Broderpool. And I got a, I got a passbook savings account. And, and I use that to deposit my paper route money, which uh, in retrospect is kind of horrifying. It was like $7 a month to, uh, to deliver the Northside topics four times a month. Uh, but in any event, the thing I was most interested in was interest. It was getting the free money. In the passbook savings account, you get to see how much interest is applied. And at the time, of course, you could get 5%. And that was a huge deal for me in the first quarter that I was able to get a full dollar in interest. And that inspired me to do a lot of calculations about how much money I would need to save in order to be able to live off of the interest. And to this day, I make the same calculations. It's so funny. I, I, I did the same thing, and which is what led me to start investing in sixth grade because I realized we're doing a stock market project that, that you could see those jumps were much more than a cent here and a cent there. And that's also why I think you can't stop teaching your kids about growing money at savings. You you have to take it to investing, which again, there's not great. There's not a great mechanism to help a kid invest. The last thing you want to do is give them a Robin Hood account, right? You, you, really, truly, the last thing you want to do. And I mean, come at me. I mean, I mean yeah. that. So uh, even if you had to facilitate it through your own account, and it's not their money, it's your money. I mean. Get them to invest and, and, and make it a consumer brand, something that they, they find interesting uh, because in, you know, don't get them an index fund when they're seven years old. No one cares. Right. Get, get them a consumer stock that they might care about. Now, you on your podcast, at, uh, when Olivia was eight or nine, you had her on for a very special edition of Beat the Planet of the podcast to talk about the things you wanted her to know about money. And I have to say that was an amazing episode because she was <laughs> so funny. That was amazing. Yeah. Can I run through these real quick? If you see Please, if you have yeah, extra I'm anxious thought. to see what I said that long ago. Okay. You know, I, I only found nine of them. Allegedly, there were 10, but, you know, we'll, just, we'll do nine. Um, number one, you need to have the patience to let your money grow. Man, I wish we'd do an episode for adults there. You know, what's interesting with the stock market is that if you get a 10% return, that's phenomenal. Mm. But amateur investors want a 100% return. They want to double their money because if all you have is $100 and you're going to part with that $100 for a period of time, you want that $100 to be $200. But if I told you that that $100 is $110 on 365 days from now, you're going to be disappointed and I'm going to be high-fiving you, right? So um, that is still true. And I, you know what, let's do that. Let's turn this into a game of do I still stand by that advice? And so yeah. for number one, I still stand by that advice. Okay. And I mean, that, I mean, for her, that was kind of a concept until you made it about whether or not she could have candy by the end of the podcast. Yeah, I tried to do the old marshmallow experiment, you know, the old yeah. uh, one marshmallow, two marshmallow. I think you got her to, to hold on three marshmallows or three, uh, <laughs> <laughs> three pieces of chocolate. Hilarious. Number two, some people work very hard and still don't have a lot of money. And some people who don't work hard do have a lot of money. Man, 
I love, I love that. Can this turn into me loving my own guidance? Absolutely. That's the truth. And I think I get frustrated with the I work hard thing. And therefore, a lot of people work hard. And a lot of people work hard and just simply didn't have the privilege of other people. And I think that's the tale of that that piece of advice is privilege is, is not the great equalizer. It is the great cheat to this idea of if you work hard, but you've been given more opportunity, you're going to outwork some, you're going to outperform financially someone who is working hard, but didn't have privilege. And, and I, I think acknowledging that is so important. I think helping a kid understand that a lot of people work hard and, and sometimes luck has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or who your parents know. So, yeah. I mean, the fact that I can tweet something and, and, and get people buying things from our website, not exactly starting at home plate. I mean, you're sort of on second or third at that point. Three, as we said before, you have to pay your debts. And and one of the things that you mentioned in here, and I thought those were super interesting, is that you, at least at that time, were taking Olivia to pay your mortgage every month. I still do. You're joking. No, I still do. She's if if she's available, if I'm not doing it during the workday, I physically go to everyone in the world makes fun of me. So uh, maybe we'll get a few other thousand people making fun of me going forward. Um, I still physically pay my mortgage at my bank every single month. And it's my favorite part of the month. Good Lord. I know. No, I am a tedious person, Mason. If you've not figured this out at this point, I love it. I man, I was having this conversation in Phoenix this week with somebody. It's like I love the idea of owning my home in the process that's involved with that. Like I know my balance just ticked below a certain point, a milestone for us when I paid it on the 15th of this past month. Uh, And I love that. I have the stack. Here's one on my desk right now. Here is a payment coupon. I'm not turning it so uh, you can't see it. Oh, we're on a podcast. Nobody can see it. No one can see it. You know, as a 12-year radio broadcaster, it's always nice when I make a (laughs) physical visual reference. Anyway, for those. It was a good sound though. I could hear it. Yeah. Thank you. That is my payment coupon from March 15th of 2019. And I love it. I have a stack of these. And I can see my balance come down. And I I make my kids hand the check to the teller. And I, I make them say, we want to stay another month. I don't know. That's really for me. But I, I love it. I'm not the, I, don't, I got problems. Yeah. But I love doing that. So, so, so your mortgage holder, your mortgage bank, has a physical branch location. Yes, and I chose them because of that. Oh, that's nice. I'm yeah. crazy about that. I because here's the thing, and and and, they, and, and that bank has not sold the mortgage to several. No, other that's people. also why I chose it. Yeah, because at some point in time, which within the next eight years, I'm going to pull up to that bank for the last time, and it will be one of the finest moments of my life that I have been preparing for. And only I will get any joy out of that. I will go home. I will tell my life partner, Mrs. Planner, I will say, we did it. And she will not care nearly as much as I do because yeah. of all those drives to Castleton. Well, you know, my first mortgage, uh, I forget who it was with first. Within two or three years, it became uh, a Wells Fargo mortgage. And then two or three la- years later, it became a, I don't know, Elements? Is that something? Uh, mortgage. But our new mortgage is with a bank that has a local presence. So maybe, maybe I'll think about doing that. That sounds like I'll fun. go with you. Give me a call. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's the same one. All right. So I still stand by that advice. Number four, don't make your money problems other people's money problems, which basically, I mean, the way that you described it was don't borrow money from your family. Man, this 
this advice is aged like fine wine. I got to admit. I mean, this is this is some good stuff. I still stand by that. Um, you know, I, I feel like within the last two months in our house, I actually spoke that phrase about money to my daughter. That your financial challenges don't make them my financial challenges. You've got to figure this out. And I think that also goes to the heart of the ultimate, we're going to try to make you independent so you can move out. I mean, it fits right into that, you know, and that that is that one's on the nose, right? That's the whole point of that piece of advice. Number five actually is after college, you cannot move home. See ya. Bam. I, again, I, I, I just want to, I'm not a monster, everybody. That's what I'm trying to accomplish at some point in time. If we have to be that way, absolutely. And if you've made that same decision, God bless you. Um, I just, but that's the goal. That's the yeah. goal. I, I would just say uh, to counter that argument that there have probably have been three different times in my adult life that I have moved back in with my mom just because of either uh, some sort of financial crisis, not of my own doing, or just, you know, needing to find another career. And I've, I've always been really grateful for that. And each time I did move out. Yeah, here's the thing. I'm not v certainly vilifying people who do that. I don't want that to be the takeaway. I want it to be, I want, I want that end goal to create the structure of independence. Um, but I'm so thankful for families that are able to do that. Uh, number six, girls can do anything boys can do. They can do better. I, I, I do not stand by that advice. It should be girls can do anything that boys can do and likely do it better. Uh, that would be the that would be the the tag on that one. Number seven was being rich in and of itself is a terrible goal. Uh, I a thousand percent agree with uh, the Pete the Planner that had hair. I think during this episode of the show you're referencing when she was there, I think I did have a half full head of hair. So you did, yeah. I, I stand by the hairy Pete the Planner. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the idea is that your goal should be more in tune with, you know, what you want out of life, not simply to make a lot of money. Otherwise, you're really not pursuing any particular goal. Yeah, it's just that's just, I don't know. I've always thought, thought the idea of being rich is gross. Mm -hmm. Now, being rich can represent that you've ticked a lot of other boxes and the byproduct, the, the, the quantitative byproduct is wealth, sure. But but that's different than saying I want to be wealthy. Um, I just find that I don't know. Maybe that's a privileged comment. I just find it to be a gross a gross goal. Number eight was when you have a problem, you need to focus on the problem and solve it instead of complaining about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Were you in my house last week? I mean, what are we what are we doing here? I feel like you have hidden cameras in my home. It's still yeah. I mean, look. We can all react emotionally to a challenge in front of us, but at some point in time, you're just wasting time mm. on, on the possible solution. The problem can either be solved or it cannot. 99% uh, of problems can be solved that occur in our daily lives. And the more you, you're sitting there whining about it, um, yeah, I mean, look, I stand by that one. Here's something. Um, let me go back to number seven real quick. I, I think a point that you, that you made there that I was thinking about on the way home last night, ideally, you want to put yourself in a position where you don't need a lot of money. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, to my mortgage point here of my, the tediousness of me going to pay my mortgage, there's, there's a reason for this. I will have it paid off before the kids go to college in case we need extra cash flow when they're in college. And then ultimately what it does is it reduces our lifestyle to the tune of like 33% of mm. what our income is. 
because we won't have that expense. So we're on this journey to not need money, which is counterintuitive to be on a journey to have a lot of money. My, my, my personal goal as your local financial expert is to not need a lot of money. So you can either follow that or not, but that's, that's, my, that's my goal. Uh, number nine, share what you have with others. When you're flush, share it. Yeah, I, I mean, this goes back to privilege, right? Like it's this idea, um, and it goes back to equity and equality and the differences around those two concepts too. Look, I mean, I, I've, I, I fund a scholarship at Pike High School and I have for 15 years for first-generation college students. And it's, that's out of equity, right? That's out of the idea that I, I, I grew up in different circumstances. So to be the first person in your school to go to college or your family, I should say, is a pretty big stinking deal, right? So share, sharing, being a good steward of the, the, the money for your community is really important. I stand by that. Did I disagree with any of my advice to my daughter? Not really. I mean, the one time I think you really disagreed with it, what you wanted to do was actually overemphasize it. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it was with the, the boy girl thing, the gender thing. And I, I think here's what I've learned with that too. You know, when, when something, when, when women are marginalized in our society uh, quite often, unfortunately, and, and we say things like, that's, that's why you got to teach your daughters. It's like, no, 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 no. Here's what I've learned. This is why you've got to teach your son. <laughs> not to marginalize women. This, this is this is no longer about the women. This is about women being marginalized by men. So that uh, th there there's my politics for the day, everybody. So uh, it just occurred to me. So we have these nine lessons here that you communicated to your daughter or reemphasized to your daughter on a podcast when she was almost nine. I'm guessing that you've had to go back and and re-cement some of these over the years, just telling them about it once or twice isn't going to do it. Yeah. I mean, look, that's fair, right? Was this content or was this how we actually instruct my, my kids to, to try to live their financial lives? As, as you just heard in the last several weeks, several months, we've talked about a lot of these things in our, our house. Is it too much to be as intentional as I've just recommended with your kids? No, because you're either intentional or you're not. I, I don't want a kid to learn about money accidentally. I, I want them to earn it. I want them to spend it. I want them to run into trouble. That's the other part of this too. You start bailing out your kid at 13, 14, 15, 16 in these inconsequential little situations, then what are they going to learn? Like it's it's the adversity that that strengthens them. So I don't know. We had some at our house the other day that created some adversity for my daughter. And we were trying to solve help solve the problem or whatever. And I was like, this is great. My wife's like, I don't appreciate your outlook. I'm like, I don't care. This is great because she's going to figure out how this works. This is a character builder. Well, my first experience uh, with a credit card, which I was signed up for probably my second day of college, you know, by the vultures who are hanging around the quad with their tables and free t-shirts, uh, did not end well. And why that was a real ordeal at the time, uh, I think I've managed my credit cards much better in the, in the last 30 some years. Yeah. I mean, look, the, it, it, you're about to send your kid off to college. Tell them about the table Yeah, because the table will mess you up. Watch out for the table. You don't need a free koozie for your beer that you're not drinking. Mm -hmm. Don't get a credit card. So this was advice that you were giving to Olivia when she was nine. And how old is, is Teddy? Or Ted, Ted is 10 now. Ted is 10. Do you, are you giving him any different advice than you were giving Olivia? Not different. It's just, he doesn't care. <laughs> like he doesn't care about money the way she did. She she, her, she had like this sense of commerce 
and he he definitely doesn't like he doesn't have a desire to earn his own money and she did from the time she was seven so i'm gonna have to figure out how to how to stoke these same things with a different personality uh, but yeah i mean i we certainly try but she made it easy because she wants she's wanted to work since she was a kid and again to uh to the story of you bringing her in on the mortgage payments um do, do you think that it's a good idea to bring the kids into, I mean, a lot of the details of the family finances pretty early. So at least you can model you know, good stewardship of, of the family fortune or is them knowing so much about the family finances not a good thing? I would, uh, before I answer that, the family fortune, I'm giving away. <laughs> like, so they can figure out their own family uh, money situation. Um, I, I would say that it's about the mechanism, the mechanism of a payment, the mechanism of debt, the mechanism of choices. A couple, about a year ago, maybe during the pandemic, we were at dinner one night, we, we had a little game, we were just all going around. My wife and I were trying to get the kids to guess what a house costs, what a car costs, what a vacation costs. And the guesses were absurd, right? I mean, they were just like so off. And that's why getting into the details of these things with your kids is sort of pointless because they can't contextualize it. But the mechanism of, of ownership and savings, like that's that's what really matters. I have to say that was really the magic of the prices, right? Is what from a very early age, I knew exactly how much a four-door sedan cost. That is hilarious. I dare I say the funniest thing you've ever said on your program. <laughs> Right. That's funny. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I think my freshman year of college, I just watched The Price of Right. I mean, that was my economics class. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was super helpful. And then, and I always sort of harken back to those days when, you know, a Ford Granada cost $4,995 uh, when I look at the car prices today, which I guess makes sense. Hey, good thing you know what a Ford Granada costs these days. That's a very applicable <laughs> when you go to a lot. It's a luxurious car. Yeah, it's like you go to the lot to buy your Granada and it's not that there's such a huge demand on it and it's not there. It's that it literally doesn't exist. Good job, Mason. Oh, I wish they did. I, to this day, I've, uh, I've loved big cars. But I know. I know. It's not good for society. Well, hey, uh, we talked for a long time. I really appreciate this. This is great. My pleasure. Enjoy. And uh, talk to you another time. My thanks again to Pete the Planner. A quick reminder, his column on personal finance appears regularly in the print edition of IBJ, and you can find several years worth of his work at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I'd like to point out. First up, a provision in the $280 billion Chips and Science Act authorizes $10 billion to create 20 tech hubs across the nation, three of which should be in the Midwest and in areas not already known as leading tech centers. Peter Blanchard explores Indiana's chances for getting on that list. Also in this week's issue, Dave Lindquist outlines how artist Loban Hamilton is investing in an Eastside neighborhood and creating living and studio spaces for other artists. And Daniel Bradley reports on the effort to save trees and other aesthetic features in Westfield and Noblesville as Duke Energy plans a new substation and two transmission lines to serve growing power needs in those communities. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. 
I will say, it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here is a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now it works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of depth and breadth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.